Open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 19 as we continue. I'm sorry, it's Luke 19. Seb's not too happy about that. Luke chapter 19. The next two events in the Lord's ministry are, are relatively short, but there are some details we need to cover in it, and both will be in Luke 19. So we'll look at verses 1 through 10, and then we'll go through verse 28 with what remains. <clears throat> this first event is the conversion of Zacchaeus, and no, we're not going to sing any wee little Zacchaeus songs this afternoon. Starting in verse 1, And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus' name meant pure or righteous one, and you might write that in the margin. It's going to come back around. He was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. It's wonderful when the Bible puts all the hermeneutics right out front, so we have all these details about who Zacchaeus is. Not, not only what he does, not only his wealth, but his, there's a little bit of his character in the name Zacchaeus as well. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press, because he was little of stature. Now the original Greek word here for this phrase could be referring to his age or his size. And, and I'll, I'll give defense of both in a little bit, but just keep that in mind, that the original Greek isn't necessarily saying he's a tiny person, uh, but it could also be saying he's a young person. And I think there's some evidence to defend both. And one is in the very next verse. He ran. He ran openly. He ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. Uh, I know we like to envision a tiny old man doing this. It's probably not likely. I mean, it could be. Could be, certainly. And I'll give defense for both. But again, we've got some evidence right away. This is probably a younger man. Maybe he's young and tiny. Uh, but we'll, we'll press on. And it says uh, that he knew Jesus was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, behold Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for so much as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Amen. So as we typically do before I dive into whether he was old or tiny, uh, or, or young and tiny, whatever it might be, we've got to lay out some some details concerning the ministry of the Lord Jesus. As we're trying to put all this in order, we need to see the, con the consecutiveness of this between other events. This is the third and the last time that we see Jesus dying with a publican. Uh, and if you don't remember the other times, I'm about to give them to you. The first time was at Matthew's house. You probably remembered that one, Matthew chapter 9, uh, verses 9 through 13, Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, and that same account is told by Dr. Luke in Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. The second time is in Luke, which we're in right now, all the way back in Luke 15, verses 1 through 7. Interestingly enough, Jesus dined three times with publicans, and he dines three times with Pharisees. Luke 7, 36 through 50, Luke 11, 37 through 54, and Luke 14, verses 1 through 6. Dr. Luke gives us all three accounts of that. 
The opposite extremes in the Jewish order would have been the publicans and the Pharisees. This is exactly why the Lord gave the illustration just a few lessons ago about prayer between a publican who said, thankfully, not, uh, or I'm sorry, the Pharisee who said, thankfully, I'm not like the publican, and the publican who said, have mercy on me, wouldn't even lift his head, but smote his breast and referred to himself as a sinner. As chief among the publicans, this righteous one, this Zacchaeus, supervised the men who collected taxes. And, of course, he received his share of the money, which is likely why our text says that he was rich. And it does say that in the very first verse, uh, or first, one or first couple of verses right away. He's rich. So there's no question about that, which is something to also make a mental note of because we've had a couple of lessons recently about how the, the rich are going to have a hard time getting into the kingdom of heaven. They have a different idea set in mind, usually, of how that is possible for them to retain in this world and also obtain in the next. But this Zacchaeus is referred to as a righteous one. This Zacchaeus is seen of the Lord Jesus, and this Zacchaeus is rich. As Jesus and his followers made their way through Jericho to Jerusalem, as we talked last time, there's two Jerichos, so now he's on his second Jericho, making his way through. Zacchaeus kept seeking to see Jesus, but uh, most commentators say because of his small stature, this was very difficult. And in his eagerness, Zacchaeus did two things unbecoming a man of his position, which we've mentioned. He ran, and in the east, men do not run. Good place to live, huh, if you don't, don't want to run. And he climbed a tree. They don't do that either. They do dig holes. Sorry. But they don't run. They don't climb trees. His boyish curiosity led to his conversion. There's a lot of references here to youth or size. Don't know the answer. Don't need to know the answer. But understand he did some things that are unbecoming of those in his typical position because he wanted to see Jesus. Even rich, even in his position as chief among the publicans, he wanted to see Jesus. What an outstanding thing to observe as our Lord's disciples had just recently heard how hard it is for a rich man to get into the kingdom. Luke 18, the previous chapter, verses 24 through 27. This proves indeed that the things which are impossible with men are possible with God, which is how that lesson concluded. It was kind of like Jesus knew to put a footnote there because we're going to come back to it when Zacchaeus climbs a tree. You can't make this. This is how the Lord taught. It's wonderful. It's, he taught them a lesson about how hard it is for a rich man. And it's not just hard. It's impossible for a man to do anything apart from Christ. As we said this morning, but this man had a strong desire. This man had a longing. This man led, his desire to see Jesus led to something unbecoming of a man in his position to go and go and go. There's one other that we read about. I think it's also in Luke's account. The woman with the issue of bleeding for a dozen years. She wanted so badly to just touch the hem of the garment of the Lord Jesus Christ as she chanted to herself, if I could but touch the hem of his garment, I could be made whole. If I could but touch him, if I could but touch him. The original text says that it's written in such a way that she would have continued to say it over and over and over again as encouragement, like we said this morning, to herself. She's pressing through a throng, through a crowd of people in which traditionally she'd have to say, unclean, unclean, because of her situation with menstrual bleeding. But she reaches the garment of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? She's made whole. Amen. Dr. Luke says that the physicians could do nothing. Pretty important, because he's a physician. He knew what he was talking about. Only one could make her whole. 
And Zacchaeus had to see this one. It was Jesus who wanted to see Zacchaeus. Amen. We got to get that in our minds. And it's not a stretch because we just looked at Bartimaeus last Sunday. And we talked about how the, even the disciples, those around him in, the, in this first <laughs> church, were saying, shh, hush, quiet. It's unbecoming to shout at our rabbi as he walks by. But who stopped and who looked and who called Bartimaeus? Well, we see that here too, don't we? Jesus stopped, Jesus looked up, and Jesus called Zacchaeus to come down and receive him as a guest in his home. It's likely Zacchaeus didn't even have a meal prepared. So if we're going to think for even a moment that it's the works of Zacchaeus that earned the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ, it wasn't. I, there may have been others that he'd passed by that were curious to see Jesus, but Jesus stopped, looked, and called Zacchaeus. What a blessing to know that the only one who could receive poor lost sinners unto himself does indeed receive poor lost sinners unto himself. I don't think we say that enough. And if we don't say it enough, we eventually convince ourselves that there must have been something about that old sinner that made for him to look at him from the cross. If I were to examine you, scourge you, embarrass you, press a crown of thorns against your temple, put a mocking robe around you and, and call you king, and then usher you through a crowd as you bear your cross to its hole, and then mount you on the cross and put you up, and watch as you suffer, and being mocked by the crowds, Crucify Him, crucify Him, crucify Him. How many people are you going to look out upon and shed, cast mercy on? You're not going to look at anybody. You're going to close it. Let's be men for a minute, right? You're going to close your eyes and you're going to weep like a baby. I would. You're going to suffer so much torment, so much shame, and then the fact that no one in your humility is coming to your aid. That was our Lord's story. Remember, he wasn't just ridiculed by the mobs. He was ridiculed by both male factors, at least for a period, both male factors, on the right and on the left. Can you imagine that? And Zacchaeus was found. It's very curious in the text, too. Jesus didn't look up and down every tree. He knew the exact tree. He didn't have to ask everybody up a tree if he had a house. He knew Zacchaeus had a house, so I'm coming to your house to eat. John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Amen. He received Jesus... Excuse me. He received Jesus in this text joyfully. Joyfully. And gave every evidence that he had experienced new life in his heart. Salvation came to the house of Zacchaeus. Revelation 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. <laughs> because he had exercised the same kind of saving faith as Abraham. 
I love how that song put, I don't know, I've never heard that before, but how he opes the door. He opes the door for us. A door we could not open. Much like the door on the ark we could not close that he closed, he opes the door for us who could not open it. What a contrast between the attitude of our Lord toward Zacchaeus and the attitude of the crowd in verse 7. When they saw it, they murmured, saying, He's gone to be a guest with a man that is a sinner. Remember, this is the third time he's dined with a publican. He's eaten with lots of sinners because the three times he dined with Pharisees, which, you know, that's six, they were all sinners. He was eating with all of them. There wasn't quite as much rebuking from the crowd when he ate with Pharisees, but they were also sinners well beneath the stature of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. They could only stand by and criticize as seen earlier in this same book in Luke 15, verses 1 through 2. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Because remember, in their heritage, dining with someone is a very intimate fellowship. Baptist is probably where we got the idea from. So it wasn't just that he was receiving sinners, but he's intimately fellowshipping with sinners. Beloved, if you're here and born again, he's going to want that with you too. He wants more than, oh yeah, he's my Savior. He wants you here. He wants you with his people. He wants you out there with the lost. He wants you saved and acting as a saved person at all times. And he does want good things for you, which as we said this morning means some of the drop has to be burned off. But that is all lumped into the compassion the Lord Jesus Christ has for his people. Amen. Verse 10 is a key verse in all of Luke's gospel. For Luke describes the compassionate Son of Man, the Savior of the lost. In Luke 1, 47 and verse 71, Luke 2, verse 11, Luke 7, 50, Luke 9, 56, Luke 18, 42. Look at verse 10 in our text here. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save to come to seek and to save that which was lost. And remember, when Luke is writing this, it is of the account of most, if not all, of the disciples or the early church of the Lord Jesus Christ who had witnessed these things. He not only was able to attest that's what he came to do, but he could have told you that's what he came and was doing. He would have heard the stories of what's coming in Acts chapter 2 when Simon Peter stands and delivers a sermon to the Jews. And daily they were added to the church roll. Dr. Luke has all of that information. Jesus put the Father's will first, the mission that he was sent upon, and it has been achieved. Amen. What happened to Zacchaeus can happen to anybody who will trust the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I got to see him. The woman with the issue of bleeding said, I got to touch him. I got to touch just the hem of his garment. Beloved, what I was talking about earlier this morning wasn't some pastor having some nervous breakdown. It is the sincere concern of a father and of a pastor of one of the Lord's true churches in 2024. We don't see any self-sacrifice from believers anymore. We see countless individuals who will move for jobs or weather, but not for churches. In fact, I've had taken calls at Berea when folks wanted me to tell them there was a church someplace they'd love to live, and when I couldn't, they got mad at me. Like it was my job to plan a mission in the most comfortable climate for them to go live in and retire for the rest of their days. You be that missionary. We're not done. 
Jesus is our portion, and it was a portion that suffered and conquered death. That's what we're taking part in, so that we can have everlasting rest in the kingdom of heaven. Will you trust the Lord Jesus Christ in that way? That you would do things unorthodox, such as running and climbing trees, when the rest of the crowd says, Shh, do not cry out for the Messiah as he passes by. Do not pursue after the Messiah as he walks through the crowds. Do not climb trees and put our Messiah in harm's way with your clumsiness, with your unorthodox ways. The second event begins right there in verse 11, the parable of the pounds. So we'll look at Luke 19, verses 11 through 28. And as they heard these things, this is right after the Zacchaeus thing, so that's why I wanted to put it in the same outline. As they heard these things, he added and spake a parable. First parable we've had in a while, by the way. Because he was nigh to Jerusalem. There's a reason immediately given. This is not often in the parabolic deliveries in the gospel accounts when we have the exact reason for the parable up front. Most of the time in the scriptures, he explains the parable to the disciples later in a more intimate setting when they have asked for him to give more specific information. But here, he tells us immediately he's giving this parable because he's close to Jerusalem. And we know the weight of that because from the last couple of weeks, we've heard the Lord Jesus tell his disciples what's coming in Jerusalem. His death, his offer, his sacrifice, his betrayal is coming in Jerusalem. I got to give you this parable because Jerusalem is nigh. And because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear, that's the second reason for this parable. There was a misunderstanding amongst the crowds that when the Messiah came, and because the Passover is coming, that the kingdom of God would be established upon the earth right away, and it would begin in Jerusalem. He had to make sure they understood what was coming. He had to make sure that they were prepared to still long and look for the arrival of the kingdom of the Lord. It has not arrived yet. There is a, a kingdom of, course, of sorts and our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. But his establishing of a perfect new Jerusalem and a perfect new earth, these things have not come about, obviously. But they're coming. It goes on. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. Now, if you're looking at the outline, a couple of these, there's no parallel accounts. So there's some things underlined here, not because they don't appear in other accounts. None of this does, but because it's very important to this parable. And that phrase right there is one of them. Occupy till I come. This is the commandment of the certain nobleman to his ten servants. It's also going to be clear when we explain the parable what he's talking about. The next phrase I have underlined is immediately following it. But his citizens hated him. It's an important thing that conjunctions do. Uh, If we use the word and, it connects two thoughts. And they're traveling on the same train in the same direction. But if I say or, or but, say for example I say the apple pie at lunch was delicious, but, and no, I'm not naive enough to finish this sentence, anything I say after but is not going to be delicious. We're going to go on the other track the other way. And that's what happens here. 
he gives them command to occupy till he comes, and the, and the very next sentence says, but his citizens hated him. They didn't occupy till he comes. There's going to be a portion that do not occupy or are not faithful because they don't have a love for this nobleman. And he sent a message after him, or, or they sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. And Strong's defines this term trading as undertaking a business for sake of gain. So it's a lot like what you would think it would be. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, or well done. Well is the same phrase, same word, but it's well done. So well or well done. Thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, thou have thou authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said, Likewise to him, be thou also over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere, which means harsh, rough, or rigid man. Thou takest up thou, uh, thou takest up that, thou liest not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. And he saith unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere harsh, rough, rigid man, taking up that I laid not down and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then, gavest not thou my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury. And the word usury in this sense is interest. And he said unto them that stood by, take from him the pound and uh, give it to him that hath ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he hath ten pounds. For I say unto you that unto everyone which hath with hath shall be given, and from him that hath not, even that he hath, shall be taken away from him. But those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. And when he had thus spoken, he went before ascending up to Jerusalem. I don't know how the prosperity gospelists deal with this parable. Be very clear. I, I, I don't know how most Methodists do things or Protestants do things or, or Jewish people do things. I, I'm just speaking from a point, uh, a point of naivety, but I don't imagine being able to teach this parable and say, but he's a loving God that loves everyone and he doesn't judge or hate or be mean to anyone. It's not what this parable teaches. Something else very important to establish here. How many servants did he give pounds to? Just off the top of your head, anybody got a guess? Anybody remember? Ten. Ten. We only hear about three. So much shame for that third one. We need the rest of the seven, did. Nothing worth mentioning in this parable. It's not an accident that he tells us there's ten. It's a parable. He tells us it's a parable. He could have said there's just three if it was unimportant that there were seven others not worth mentioning. But those who are ashamed of him... He will be ashamed of before the Father. He doesn't even mention the seven. This is a very particular parable that most will gloss over, mainly because they can't deal with what he says to do at the end and defend their religion or what it is they say Jesus does. But this is important. Passover season brought a great deal of excitement to the Jewish people. 
as they recalled the great victory of the Exodus and then pondered their plight as vassals of or holders of land but forced to pay homage and give allegiance to Rome. Yeah, I had to look that word up. Again, I'm not the smartest preacher you're going to find. But vassals is a pretty cool word after you look it up. That's how they were living. They had land that they were told they had, but they're forced to pay for it and show honor and respect to Rome for the privilege of living on that land. There's even times as they would walk from one city to the next that if Roman soldiers were nearby, they could be compelled to carry their armor another mile just because they're Jewish and just because they're Roman. This is the reality of their times, which most of us don't know anything about as far as experience. This parable, there's commentators that believe there's a chance it's based on history. 30 years before, Archelaus, which is referenced in Matthew 2.22, his son, or rather the son of Herod the Great, he went to Rome to ask Augustus Caesar for his kingdom, for his father's kingdom. that, That should sound confusing. He's not going to his daddy to ask for the kingdom. He's got to go to Rome. He's got to go to Caesar to ask for the kingdom. It was necessary for him to go to Rome because his father's will was subject to confirmation or annulment by the Roman Senate. Imagine that, a world that has to have approval from Rome. Some of the Jewish people sent a delegation to protest the appointment, which we see in the text, the citizens hated him, which is why a lot of commentators think this is connected to this event. But history does not show where any money had been committed to uh, Archelaus' servants as capital for his return. Uh, We don't really have any other illustration that ties into that. So you can think about there being a connection really from the standpoint of some of the people in the crowd would have been familiar with that event. But the Lord does tell us that this is a parable. The expectation was growing amongst God's people that the Messiah was going to establish a visible kingdom for his people upon his arrival in Jerusalem. He's going back to Jerusalem. Pretty big deal. He's been talking about it in a lot of his lessons. We've been pointing at it for, I think in our study, probably four months now. He's going back to Jerusalem. And we know that we are approaching quickly that week of passion, if you want to call it that, in which he goes through the examinations and the crucifixions and that final Passover event occurs. uh, And it's going to be really hard to teach. So pray for me and pray for one another because it's It's hard. The Bible is very detailed in these events. We know them, but we're going to go through every single one of them. And we're going to discuss how they break their own legal procedure to bring him before counsel, to bring him to this point of judgment. Uh, We actually have a a good friend, Mel Kimberlin, who is a district attorney, right? I think at this point. Um, He did a very intense study on this. If you have sermon audio, you can look it up. A very, very good study. I've got some notes from that that we're going to bring to light. He deals with our current court system, and he's got a lot of good notes on this particular event. But Jesus here, because of the excitement of God's chosen people, because of the misunderstanding that he already knows about amongst his people, but we've begun to see Simon Peter asking, what all that we have given up, what will we receive? John and James say we desire the right and left hand seats in the kingdom of heaven. And remember, they're the inner circle. So those that are following Jesus most closely also have a misunderstanding of what's coming. He gives his soldiers an instruction to occupy till he comes. He gives this parable because the kingdom is not going to be established visibly and physically in Jerusalem when he gets there. Instead, 
the command is to occupy till he comes. Remember what the certain nobleman was doing? He was going to receive a kingdom. And he says, occupy until I get back with said kingdom. That's what we're doing, even presently. This is not a command a general gives to those that he is walking uh, that he is walking into the city with and staying with, but one he intends to come back to, which is the intention that we're still awaiting. The word occupy means to carry on the business of a banker or a trader, according to Strong's. We've already defined that word trading to mean to undertake a business for sake of gain. So we can conclude that those he was giving these marching orders to were to be busy seeking gain for their master's business which was being a fisher of men. He went to prepare a place and to receive a kingdom, which is defined as a royal power, kingship, dominion, rule. And it was his to claim, and the cross had to come first. Turn with me to the end of Matthew. I want you to see it. This certain nobleman was leaving his soldiers to receive a kingdom, a royal power, a kingship, dominion, or rule. Look at verse 18 of Matthew 28. Jesus at this point had already been crucified, already been buried, already been revealed as being alive, already revealed Himself a number of times to His church. The ascension is right around the corner. And He says, All power is given unto Me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Seems to line up pretty well with the parable of the pounds. Why would we ignore this parable? Why would we look past this moment when He is most honest and most clear and most compassionate with His church before going into Jerusalem? He is instructing a misunderstanding of the believers who are following Him, His disciples. He's modeling that for His church. He says we cannot go further in misunderstandings. We cannot go further with wrong starting points. It all has to circle back to me because it's all tied together. It's all clear. It's all a perfect type of what I am establishing for the Father's will. And it never varies. The parable of the pounds must not be confused with the parable of the talents. We haven't even got there yet. That's in Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. And it's still a few days away from the Lord's ministry. I think I taught on it recently, but it wasn't part of this study. That event is still coming. And in that event, he discusses the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of an age. It's very different than what he's talking about here. The talents represented opportunities to use abilities. And since we all have different abilities, we are given different opportunities. But the servants in this parable each receive a pound. That's not a talent. I understand that it can be referred to as a, as a wage or an income or something to spend. But it's not used the same way in the two parables. They're given a pound. And that was the equivalent of three months' wage. It would have been a pretty, you gave me three months' wage from this job or my secular one. I'm probably going back to the Grand Canyon. That's, that's a pretty decent amount of money. These were trusted, these servants were trusted with three months of wage, a quarter of their year. They were trusted to make it prosperous. 
to end the trading or to achieve or receive some kind of gain for it. It represents the deposit of the gospel that has been given to each believer. Consider Paul as he charges Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. He says, O oh, Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so called. I love that line. That's speaking right to the 20th and 21st century, isn't it? Which some professing have erred concerning the faith. He says, keep what you've been entrusted with. Preserve it. Protect it. Keep it pure. Paul's encouragement to the church in Corinth, there in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. He says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our own body. For we which live are always, always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. Who is he talking to? A church. A true, local, visible church in the city of Corinth. That death is working in the members, in the pieces, in the limbs, in those li lively stones, those parts, that life works in the church. Death worketh in the member, life exists in the church. He is starting to show us a picture of the power of that investment, that pound that he has entrusted his servants with. God commissioned to, uh, His commission to us is to go. He's charged us to multiply His message so that the whole world will hear. And we see it happen almost immediately in Acts as the persecution of the church causes for the Christians to scatter. As they're chased every which way by Saul and eventually just unnamed uh, persecutors, they continue to plant seeds as they go. Seeds that require water, that require sun and continue to grow. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Paul, again, our writer, says, And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. Received joyfully, just like Zacchaeus. So that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us, from the wrath to come. Amen. They received that pound through much affliction, joyfully. You ever plant a garden? I just, 
I'm not a big Mother Earth guy. I, I yelled at Lainey when she was young, and she yelled at me for doing something to Danny Lyons about the Mother Earth and all that. It was an intense conversation. But if you can imagine yourself as the soil, I mean, you got to tear the living daylights out of that soil to plant the seed. You got to kill that grass. You got to soften that soil. You got to turn it over, turn it over, turn it over, turn it over. It's good for the soil. You're making the soil pure and fertile. If you're doing it right, you're going to plant seed in it and life's going to spring forth. But what was there before? Life. Grass is life. You had to tear all that out and then beat the snot out of it so that you could plant something you wanted to plant. That's what happened here. With much affliction, they received joyfully the word of God. And it was expounded in such a way that Paul says, myself and my fellow missionaries need say nothing because your testimony proves of our coming in and going out in Christ with you. Your testimony says you've heard something nobody else has ever heard before. Your testimony of what you've heard from us says that this is something real. Think of the woman at the well. She goes running back into town without her water pots. But that's, she went up there in the heat of the day to get water. But she went back with no water pots and no water saying, You must come. You must see and hear this man who knew all things about me. None of those things were glorious, by the way. But she said, You've got to come. It's revealed that he is the Messiah. Did Jesus have to follow behind her and be like, it's true. What she said is true. I just want to vouch for this woman. My name is Jesus Christ and I approve of that message. Nope. Her testimony proved that she was with the Lord. That woman who was bleeding, her testimony, I've been made whole. That proves she was with the Lord. When Jesus returns... He will reward the faithful servants. This is what we see in verses 15 through 19. We discussed it a little bit last Sunday as well. He will deal with the unfaithful servants, which dreadedly we read about in verses 20 through 26. And he will judge his enemies, which is very clear there in verse 27. Read it again. But those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. We still, even in this day and time, hear people say they will not have Jesus Christ reign over them. This is their end. It's never changed. He's the only way. The judgment is coming. We must do business or occupy until he comes.